It's good to see you all this morning and to be able to join these wonderful songs of praise, songs to glorify our Lord and our Savior, to glorify a God who is sovereignly in control of all things. <coughs> Let's have a word of prayer before we turn to the scriptures. Father, we are indeed overwhelmed by what we can understand of your glory. Our minds are finite, our perspective is small, and we know we worship a God who is great and glorious and magnificent. And Father, you have decreed that we be your children. We thank you for that. We thank you for your son who came to Calvary's cross that we may have eternal life. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us and who alone can illuminate your pages to us. We pray this morning, Father, as we continue to delve into your word, that you may speak to our hearts, that you may shape our lives, and that you may continue to, to prepare us for glory. We give you our thanks in the Savior's name and for your sake alone. Amen. <clears throat> we've already had a, a great time around God's word if you came in late you missed a lot the bar's been set very high it's a tough act to follow but by God's grace we will share this morning what he has laid before us we're going to go to a very difficult passage to find Genesis chapter 1 but your page is roughing I'm going to be very concerned Genesis chapter 1 and let's take time to read this entire chapter Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, day one. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there, were, there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, 
and the stars. And God set him in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and it was evening, and it was morning the fourth day. And God said that the waters swarm and swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly over the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree of the seed in its fruit you shall have him for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has a breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. <coughs> and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his works that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation and may God bless us this reading of his word and wherever else we may go as we try and understand what we believe about creation the title of this morning's sermon is what we believe about creation and we are taking you this church through a series of distinctives that we hold dear that defines this church really these are the things that we would be expected of our members to understand and espouse and believe. And so this morning we are going to engage with Genesis uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit, but we will get there very shortly. On the 24th of November in 1959, Charles Darwin published his literary uh, book titled On the Origin of Species. That's the short title. And on the publication of his book, he took uh, the philosophy of evolution to a new height. He didn't start with him, but he certainly became 
the face and the icon and the father of evolution. This put evolution on a collision course with creationism. It was clear that the theory of evolution as presented by Darwin and the historical account of creation as recorded by Moses were diametrically opposed to each other. There is no common ground. Let me say it up front, and it's going to be my challenge this morning in some way to show you that there is no common ground. Many sought to find a way to make both work, to see if enough common ground could be found to make them both uh, mutually viable. Men claiming to be Christian uh, tried to find ways of forcing millions of years into the very explicit text of Genesis chapter 1 so that they could be seen to be scientific, so they could be seen to be uh, on, on the same footing as their scientific colleagues while at the same time trying to honor God. And so they wanted a bit of the cake and eat it. And in this case, it's not possible. This approach... Uh, that continues today, continues in such groups as theistic evolutionists. This group uh, is very popular, and its, um, its face is Francis Collins of an of a institution called Biologos. If many of you or any of you are kind of reading up on evolution and creationism, you'll come across Biologos. Biologos is a theistic evolutionist institution. And Francis Collins, a brilliant man to all intents and purposes, their spirit wants to cling to millions and billions of years. Such groups as Intelligent Design Proponents, Discovery Institute, uh, founded and directed by Stephen Meyer, another man, brilliant, good communicator, but wants to have at his disposal billions of years. Groups such as Evolutionary Creationists, there's a very popular evolutionary creationist, Dennis Lemeroux, written many books uh, on, cre on creation from an evolutionary perspective. One of the books he writes is that is titled, I Love Jesus and I Accept Evolution. You should have actually titled, I Love Jesus, but I Love Darwin more. There are other views. She doesn't like what I'm saying there are other views that disregard religion but still want to adhere to a principle of teleology. That is, they want to make sure that things do seem to move along by cause and effect, but there seems to be a purpose. So they kind of hanging there. In this category, we find such views as orthogenesis, progressive evolution, evolutionary progress, progressionism. Now, there, these are some, and there are many more, and there are variations to these names, and we certainly cannot go through these categories today. We're not going to go through these categories today. I will touch on some of them as they relate to the scriptures we will read, but this really needs to be unpacked in a, in a, in a lecture uh, uh, forum and over a long space of time. We will include as much of, as we can about information of these groups in the book we will produce eventually. But you have these categories where men are trying to have one foot in both philosophies, one in both worldviews, let me rephrase it that way. And then, of course, there is Darwinian evolution. And all of the views I've mentioned argue for a long time of billions of years for the universe to form and for life to evolve. And some claim that God created and then let evolution do its work, 
and some claim that God created sporadically and from time to time put his hand into it and guided evolution in a better direction. So they want to have both of these worldviews resident in a single philosophy. I have to mention one more group who have a belief about how things came about and a belief on the origin of the universe. There's one group I have to mention, and this group is called Young Earth Creationists. This group is distinctly different to the rest and is generally either belittled or despised by the others. Let me quote the high priest of atheism, Richard Dawkins, to you. And I quote, I said I'd never despise individuals, just their views, but there are limits. And young earth creationists who refuse to look at evidence pass mine, close quote. Richard Dawkins is prepared with his condescending smugness to uh, engage with anybody and make space for them. But when it comes to young earth creationists, he despises them. News for you. We are young earth creationists. We are despised, and we wear that badge proudly. We are few, and growing few with every generation as our kids are being exposed to education as driven by evolutionary principles. The fallacy is insidiously capturing the hearts and minds of our children. If you have kids and they go to public school, if you have children who are in university, they get this at every single level. Beware, be aware, and con continue to engage with your children and their hearts and where their minds are being taken. This is making inroads. This has made inroads. This is devastating. We, young earth creationists, are the outliers. We are not the same as any of the others on any level. There's one other group uh, called old earth creationists, and they try and stay as biblical as possible, and they do not believe in evolution. We touch a little bit on them later on when we get to the gap theory and day age theory very briefly. So what do young earth creationists believe? Quite simply, we believe the Bible. And that could be my sermon. We believe the Bible. But this is what they basically believe. This is what we basically believe. That God created everything that exists without any external or extraneous influence. It was God by himself and only God who created everything. We believe that God created the universe in six literal 24-hour days. That blows the mind of every evolutionary scientist. Six literal days, and let's blow their mind one more time. God created the universe roughly about 6,000 years ago. And God created everything, and this is important to, to grasp, and will come, become clearer later on. God created everything fully mature, and fully capable of functioning immediately at full capacity. When God turned the lights on, everything worked. There was no run-up period. There was no configuration of, of points. There was no gradual tuning things in. There was no fine-tuning. God created. Things were. They were good, and they worked. Today's sermon is not an apologetical or polemical defense against these views. As I said before, it takes far too much to do that. Neither am I going to attempt a verse-by-verse -verse exegesis of this passage. That's many sermons through Genesis 1. I'm simply going to address the following three areas. What we believe about creation, 
why we believe what we believe about creation and why it's important to believe what we believe about creation. So actually just one really simple outline and we built on that. What we believe about creation. Let's go to God's word. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This verse tells us all we essentially need to know about creation. Everything we need to know about creation is right here, encapsulated in the most precise, succinct way that disguises the profundity of what it is saying. These words are simple, but the truths they express are vastly profound. This verse states simply that we know when creation took place, we know how creation took place, and we know what was created. And that's all we need to know about creation. The rest of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and up to verse chapter 11, expels how God created and how God worked in this world. But that very first verse, that single verse, the opening verse of the scriptures, has it all. Let's look at the when. Up until this moment, up until the beginning, in Genesis 1 verse 1, nothing that constitutes the universe as we now know it existed. There was nothing. There was, a time, there was a time when time and space and matter did not exist. And then out of nothing, ex nihilo, time began. And space and matter were put in place. And Genesis 1 simply calls this moment the beginning. This was not the beginning of God. We've already been taken this morning earlier to, a, to the truth that before these, these things began... God was already setting in place his decree. He, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the, real, the realm that they, uh, that they dwelt in was already there. But there was no material matter. There was a time God does not dwell in a place that is bound by time. God dwells in that which is eternal. This is not the beginning of God. This was the beginning of creation. This was not an uncontrolled, unexplainable Big Bang. This was a purposeful and planned starting point of creation. And defining this beginning is relevant as, as relatively recent is the single most contentious issue in the creation-evolution debate. Defining creation as only 6,000 years ago, a span of time that we can grapple with, really sets the evolutionists on end. This divides young earth creationists from every other origins group, including those who aim to believe in and worship a triune sovereign God, such as intelligent design proponents and theistic evolutionists. Every origins group, other than young earth creationists, rely on evolution as essential to their system, their belief system, and therefore postulate the need for billions of years. In fact, 13.8 billion years and counting, it will change again. However, applying a consistent, literal, grammatical hermeneutic to the Bible and treating Genesis 1 to Genesis 11 as prose and not poetry, as history and not myth, places the beginning of Genesis 1 verse 1 at about 6,000 years ago. Not 600,000 years ago, not 60,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago. And how do we know that it was 6,000 years ago. How can we make this claim? And what is the basis for our thinking? Well, if we count from today and count backwards, we know that from the present day, 
to the birth of Jesus Christ is a little over two of uh, two thousand years, and that's easy to calculate. Records have been held over by various bodies, and we can easily count back count back two thousand years from now to the birth of Jesus. It's equally easy to show that from the birth of Jesus, 4 BC, to Abraham, 1996 BC, is another 2,000 years. We're now 4,000 years uh, before us. Continuing back from that time, we can determine that the period between Abraham and Adam is roughly 2,000 years. And this gives us a period of about 6,000 years. Even when making allowance for differences in genealogies, the margin of error cannot, can only be hundreds of years, not thousands. I do know, and I'm very clear, that there are young earth creationists who want to put the span wider, who want to make it longer. Uh, they are free to, to, to prove that point. We are going to go back as far as we feel we are safe to count. So how do we count for stars being millions of light years away? If we're only 6,000 years old, the universe has only started six, about 6,000 years ago. How can stars that are now in this universe be taken to be millions of light years away and therefore millions of years old? Hold on to your belts, that's coming. So now that we've looked at when the world and the universe was created, let's look at how. In the beginning, God created that's how the universe and all within it was made. God made it. God made it. God did it. Not the accumulation of gas and dust clouds. Not the work of alien life. And don't poo-poo that. It's becoming a serious form of study. The seeding of aliens uh, uh, on, on this planet. Aliens seeding our planet. Of alien life being... Um, the cause for this world, there's serious money being put into finding life out there. And SETI hasn't found anything more than three blips. How did the world begin and what was that? What happened? God created. Adherence to a young earth paradigm causes evolutionists to label us naive, illiterate, unsophisticated. It is this belief in, by the young earth creations in a creator God it sticks in the craw of evolutionists. They will not tolerate a divine foot in at the door. Professor uh, Richard Lewinton died last year. He's a renowned evolutionary biologist. He made continuous pleas to his students to have an unwavering commitment to materialism. He said no matter how counterintuitive and no matter how mystifying the concept was, still believe it. And I'll quote him. Quote, materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Close quote. So the whole point, the driving force behind evolutionary thinking, supersedes and overwhelms even trying to find out where it all began. It's about denigrating God to nothing. It's an open and continuous war against the concept that God is and that God creates and that God is the only one 
who's able to give life as we see it. Anything but God. Because with God comes accountability. With God comes, account, comes acknowledgement of morality and consequences for sin. And they will not have that. The Bible clearly teaches a very different view. If God did not create anything, nothing would have existed. Except God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the realm of the eternal existence. Turn with me to John chapter 1, please. John chapter 1. The story of creation is not a, a side issue. It's not a secondary issue. The story of creation is pervasive through the scriptures. And we see a few areas where it touches on very shortly and very briefly. But go to John chapter 1. We all know this because we've repeated this so often uh, in our lives. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know from further down, verse 14, that this is Jesus Christ, who John is writing about, as existed, as existed at that point in eternity as God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, speaks to us about his dateless, pre-existent uh, uh, glory. How do I know that was dateless? Because the word in the beginning here, that beginning that John speaks about is exactly the same beginning that Moses speaks about. It's exactly the same word. When we look at this word that John uses here, it's exactly the same word that the Alex uses to translate Genesis 1 verse 1, the Hebrew word Bereshit. And so we know that when John says, in the beginning was the word, he's speaking about the same beginning that Moses speaks about, and that beginning began because of Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Speaking about the very same one that John speaks about. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is a tremendous view we have of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as we see he's pivotal and essential to the creation of all that we have. Everything starts with him when things were created in the beginning. Before that, nothing existed. In fact, when we look at what Colossians uh, records, as Paul writes to the Colossian church, it says... Uh, for by all things were created in heaven and on earth, that's everything that we can see and not see, whether thrones, dominions, rules, authorities, this includes angels, this includes every single thing that we can em embrace within our human understanding. All these things came into being only when God created in the beginning. Before that, nothing existed. 
So we now know when creation happened in the beginning. We know how creation happened. God created. God created by the power of his word. God created in and through his son. In his son, all things hold together. And we are brought to the Trinity when we, rem- we, rem- we see in Genesis chapter 1 how when God created, the spirit was moving across the waters. And so the entire Trinity is involved in creating. And that's how we come to get what we have today. It was created in the beginning, created by God. And what was created? The heavens and the earth. With an exceptional economy of words, Genesis 1 records the entire outcome of God's initial work of creation as the heavens and the earth. At this point, heaven is still to be filled with planets and stars and heavenly bodies. For the moment, it is void and any of anything we could recognize as celestial bodies. We have to wait till the fourth day for that to happen. All that exists at that point in time, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. All that exists was the heaven devoid of heavenly bodies, and the earth. We can't conceive of that. We can't understand that. Because we know that the earth depends on gravitational pull between the earth and the sun to keep it in its orbit. Other bodies depend on gravitational force and other forces to keep them in the universe. And the universe is all held together by forces and laws of nature that God had instituted. But at this point, God, by himself, creates the heaven the void of heavenly bodies, and hangs the earth in that space. We can't explain it because God doesn't explain it, but by faith we take this as true. It's a belief in facts like this that convince evolutionary cosmologists that we are insane. They don't have any nice words and names for us. But today we understand that the earth is held in orbit around the sun, as I've said, by gravitational reaction between the earth and the sun. And the sun is kept in place by gravitational and other forces. Laws that God put in place so that everything runs according to his design. But for now, here in Genesis 1 verse 1, we just have the heavens and the earth. The mind of the natural scientist cannot conceive of this happening. He has no way of comprehending the supernatural, miraculous event of creation. Because creationism is not a category of science. It's impossible to prove creation by science. And understand all of us have a great desire as we delve into apologetics and try and reason with people who are intelligent, clever, accommodating, want to engage, try and convince convince them through logic that creation is true, evolution is false. We can't. Creation is not a science. Creation is a theology. It's a matter of faith. It can only be appropriated on the basis of faith and not simply by human reasoning. Let's take the words of someone who had his feet in both worlds. Gravity explains, and I quote, gravity explains the motions of the planets, but it cannot explain who set the planets in motion. God governs all things, and knows all that is or can be done. Thank you, Sir Isaac Newton. A Christian, a believer who has some quirks, as we all do, but extremely clear where everything began. Philosophy and science are inadequate for understanding creation. Creation cannot be explained in human terms any more than we can explain the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
by the turning of water into wine or walking on water. We certainly cannot explain the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. These historical events are supernatural and can only be understood by faith, including creation. Hebrews 11 verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Creation is a tremendous act of God, a miracle from beginning to end. We become intimidated by men and women who have several degrees behind their name, and we feel that they are that they have an argument that we cannot challenge. The problem is we're not arguing with them or they're with us. We're talking about two different things entirely. In the late 19th century, fossils and the demand for an old earth paradigm was making inroads into the evangelical church. It did this in two ways. The one was the gap theory, or what's also known as the ruin to reconstruction theory. The other was the day-age theory. The gap theory postulated that there is an unknown extensive number of years between Genesis 1 verse 1 and Genesis 1 verse 2. I espoused this for many, many years. And I know what it meant to people, what it means to people who espoused this. And we would say things like this. I used to say things like this. If you want to believe in billions of years, that's fine. You can have as much as you want. You can fit it in here. Genesis 1 verse 1. Millions of years, billions as much as you want, so that things can run down as we see in the fossil record. And then Genesis 1 verse 2 kicks in. The gap allowed for two things to take place. Enough time for the dinosaurs and other prehistoric creatures to live, die and fossilize. Come back to that shortly. And allow time for Lucifer to fall with his angelic followers. And added to this, they took the conditions recorded in verse 2 as evidence that Lucifer, now Satan, had brought chaos into the heaven and the earth that was created in verse 1. Quick side note. Be careful when you talk to your children about prehistoric dinosaurs. Prehistory does not exist. It's a fallacy. It's part of your imagination. It's only history and eternity. There's nothing before history but eternity. Prehistory, prehistoric dinosaurs... Even if they're running around in Jurassic Park, it's a fallacy. No prehistory. Please make sure your children understand that as you evangelize them and lead them to the word. It's unfortunate that otherwise good Bible scholars allow themselves to be led astray by the desire to agree with science rather than apply good, sound hermeneutics. There's no grammatical, theological, or logical reason to separate verse 1 from verse 2. They should be read together in this way, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The reason why they want to uh, slot in a, a gap for things to go wrong, uh, because they say verse 2 says the earth was without form and void. Without form and void does not equate to chaos. 
It does not mean that the earth was thrown chaotically into a condition that wasn't intended by God. Rather, God was still completing his work of creation. God had started and God was completing. The phrase simply means that the created world was without its final shape and was uninhabited by living creatures. All that would take place over the next five days. Isaiah 45 verse 18, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he decreated, empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, there is no other. And for the same reason, the darkness is not a reference to the presence of evil. Sin had not yet entered the world, and therefore evil had not yet entered the world. If darkness was evil, and if it was included in the six days of creation, then God would not have said at the end of the sixth day, as he looked back, that all that he had done was very good. When he pronounced that, he included the darkness that was there at the beginning. Quick summary, mid-sermon summary. The world was created, it did not evolve. The world was created according to design, not by a random chance. God created it. The world was created about 6,000 years ago, not billions of years ago. The world was created in six consecutive normal 24-hour days, not over a long period of time. And that brings us to the rest of Genesis, which we're not going to preach through, but Genesis 1, but we're going to touch on some things very, very quickly. Genesis chapter, verse 3 to verse, to verse uh, sorry, Genesis verse, verse 3 to verse 31 is the rest of the work of creation. Verse 3 does not start a new section, but must be read together with verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day or day one. Verse 1 and verse uh, to verse 5 is a single day. You need to grapple with that. You need to grasp that. You understand it's no more than six days in God's creation. There's something we need to take note of as we look through this passage from verse 3 down to verse 31. There are recurring phrases that form the framework of what Moses writes as he fills in the details day by day. We're not going to go through those details day by day. But I do want to point out to you what Moses uses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to solidify in the minds of his readers what was taking place. And here are the phrases that appear more or less the same and with very little exclusions in a verse or not. God said, let there be, and there was, and it was good. There was evening. There was morning. Day one. Day two. Day three. There's nothing vague or ambiguous about God's own account of what he did. It's clear. It's without confusion. As you read it in a normal way, as you read any normal history, it will make sense. You can understand it. It doesn't need much to, 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 to grasp and to digest. It's astounding in contrast how vague the language of evolutionary proponents tends to be. 
Right now in evolutionary processes, cosmogony, biology, or archaeology, evolutionists frequently make use of words or phrases like probably, possibly, in all likelihood. Let me prove that to you. In the article where it was written about how the Earth was formed, this is what was written. Earth formed around 4.54. I always marvel at this third place decimal in billions of years, but that's a story for another day. Earth formed around 4.54 billion years ago, approximately one-third the age of the universe. Volcanic outgasses probably created the primordial atmosphere and then the ocean, but the early atmosphere contained almost no oxygen. Contrast this with Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and there was evening and there was morning, day one. The contrast is stark. What about land plants? Land plants evolved from a group of green algae, and this again is from one of the magazines. Land plants evolved from a group of green algae, perhaps as early as 850 million years ago. But algae plants might have evolved as early as 1 billion years ago. The closest living relatives of land plants are the carophytes, specifically corals. Assuming that the habit of the corals was changed, has changed little since, they then say perhaps uh, plant life was generated at the edge of seasonally desiccating pools. That's how plant life started. Perhaps, maybe, by chance, if things had fallen into place, if the cards were stacked correctly. Genesis 1 verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout, let the earth bring forth, let the earth produce, and it was so, and it was good, and it was the third day. The contrast is stark. It's frightening. What about the presence of water? What about how water formed on the face of the earth? Yeah, I read this magazine and immediately a fairy tale came to mind. You will see what I mean when I get to quoting what they wrote. It's a story, I call this the mama bear principle. You'll soon see why I say that. They claim that the early universe uh, was just gas and dust clouds, and these dust clouds condense, and the dust particles will come together by ice, and so the earth was formed. Bear in mind that the earth, as we know it, weighs 5.97 billion trillion metric tons. That's a lot of dust. That's a really lot of dust. The world has a diameter of 12,742 kilometers. A lot of dust. And so they say that this is how the earth formed. But how did water form? Well, here it comes. Because the earth was not too hot, nor too cold, nor too wet, nor too dry, liquid formed on the surface of the earth. I almost want to see saying it was just right. This is from Scientific American. How did life begin? 2018. And they claim that this is how water formed because conditions were just right. Somehow, these things had pulled themselves together, and so things were just right. And they continue to say that some scientists believe this. Not all scientists. So even within their own um, fraternities, in their own uh, um, groups, there is disagreement as to what this means. In fact... They end the article by saying some stages of this process are still not well understood. Great disclosure, thank you. However, compare this to what Moses writes as he quotes what God did. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And, that were, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas 
God saw that it was good. Notice the precise specification of the time frame. There was evening, there was morning, day one, day two, day three, or really day one, second day, and third day. And so we find that it's clear that there's a huge gap between what evolutionists propose and what we believe. The Hebrew word for day can be used in five ways, and it's the word day that throws most of them. Now, one of these would be to indicate a 24-hour normal solar day. This should not pose a problem to us since Webster's Dictionary says that in the English language, day can be used in 14 different ways. So the preciseness of what is written and of, of how long it took to create the world and the use of the word day has been called into question by so many groups, including those who claim to be uh, believers, followers of Jesus Christ. But this should not pro propose a problem to us. For with the English language, as with the Hebrew, the context and the normal use of the word determines its meaning. For example, I can say to you, I decided to spend a day with my grandfather, who spoke about how cheap cars were in his day. When I told him that I expected car prices to become cheaper, he exclaimed, that would be the day. I've just used the same word in these sentences, in ev and every English speaker here understood exactly what I was saying. So when Moses wrote about six days of creation and one day of rest, he wrote in a way that the readers of the Hebrew text would understand, would not be confused, and would be clear as to what was intended. He gave them context. There was evening and there was morning. He gave them distinct identifiers. Day one, second day, third day, seventh day. Did Moses perhaps mean something else? Let's turn to Exodus, please. Exodus 20, please. Let's see if Moses meant something other than just six or seven literal days. Exodus 20. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your works, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, not, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rest on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. The Jews, the Hebrews, were clear as to what Moses meant in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. And many proponents of other theories claim that, that those are literal days because they cannot divorce it from the Sabbath, which was repeated every single seventh day. And the same days that's been used in Exodus is an account of what Moses recorded in Genesis. Those Moses did not mean something else. There was evening, there was morning, and the days were numbered. Long-age proponents seem to think that they have questions that will stop us in our tracks. So when we propose that the earth was created in six days, they say, does the Bible not say that one day can be a thousand years? 
Well, they are misquoting Peter uh, right away. Because Peter did not say that one day is a thousand years. Peter was saying one day is like a thousand years. He was, in, he was using a simile to indicate very simply that God is not constrained by time as we are, what we consider to be times that are unbearable, unendurable to God is like a day. All Peter is speaking about is that God is unconstrained about by time, God is beyond time, and God doesn't have to move and work as time dictates. And so that argument is not a good one against the fact that Moses uses days in Genesis to denote how long it took to make the earth. What about the age of the stars? That's going to definitely throw us, because guess what? It's a scientific response. The stars are obviously billions of years old, because it takes millions of light years for them to reach us. Here's the facts as we have in Genesis. The sun and the moon were created mature immediately and rule that day and that night that God placed them in the sky. The vegetation, plant yielding seeds, trees bearing fruit were created fully formed, able to bear and bearing. The birds were fully formed, no eggs were created to hatch out. When they asked when they ask you the question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know the answer. I heard chicken, right? <laughs> good, good. Made me worry. I was a little worried for a minute. Adam was created a fully mature man, totally capable of responding to the command to take dominion over the animals. So, what about the stars? The stars were created in exactly the same way, fully mature with light reaching the earth as though they'd been there for a long time. When God said, and I like the way it's said in, King, in the King James, he made the stars also. He made the sun, and he made the moon, and he made the stars also. And there's billions of stars that, that fill the galaxy. When they were made, they shone. And whoever was on earth would have seen that light right away. Like every other part of creation, they were created mature, working. The light already here that now is taking years to reach us. Do not be thrown by what is claimed to be a scientific response. Take them back to scripture. So, why do we believe what we believe about creation? Very quickly. Why do we believe what we believe about creation? Because we believe in God. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Romans 1 verse 18 to 21. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So that humans are without excuse. Why do we believe, about what, we, why do we believe what we believe about creation? Number two, because we believe the Bible. Because we believe the Bible. We must be sure that this is a hill we die on. This is a hill we do not give up. We do not agree with science because science seems feasible. We agree with the Bible because by faith we've come to understand that God created the world. Because Isaiah believed it, Isaiah 45 verse 18. Because Paul believed it, Colossians 1.16. Because Peter believed it, 2 Peter 3.4. Could these men have been wrong? 
Were they wrong in their belief of creation as God had uh, done it? If they were wrong, then God was wrong because these men wrote according to 2 Timothy 3.16 under the inspiration of spirit. God breathed these words into them. We believe it because Jesus believed it. Matthew 19 verse 4 and 5, he takes the discussion of divorce back to the beginning. Have you not read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? So, why is it important that we believe or what we believe? Number one, because it's central to our understanding of theology. If we don't understand Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, we will know, have no understand of the gospel and of sin. Because this is where sin started. We know the story of, of, of chapter 3. We know the story, the account, the historical account of Eve being beguiled by the serpent and partaking of a fruit and given to Adam, who willfully and willingly took, partook and plunged himself and everyone who came from his loins into sin. Adam's sin is imputed to, uh, to us because Adam was a real man created by the hand of God on the sixth day. And in chapter 3, this man sins. Without understanding of creation and the, and this, and the account that, that arose into Genesis chapter 3, we will not understand salvation. Genesis 3 verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you shall strike his heel. This is known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. This verse introduces two elementary things about what's happening. The curse on mankind because of Adam's sin and God's provision for a savior from sin will take away the curse upon himself. If we don't believe the creation account of Genesis 1, if we don't believe that Genesis 1 to Genesis 11 is, is history and not poetry, if we do not believe that this is his, it's not a myth, if we do not believe that this is exactly as things took place historically, then our understanding of sin, understanding of salvation, understanding of our accountability to God to respond in faith and respond in repentance will be skewed. If we fail to understand creation, we fail to understand sanctification, at least when it comes to marriage and divorce. For it was this very crea uh, created couple that, that was created in Genesis chapter 1. It's that that is used by Jesus Christ when he speaks about divorce and why it's wrong to put asunder what God has joined because of how God created them in the beginning. Why do, we believe, why do we believe what we believe? Because it is central to understanding of the miracles. You can't claim to believe the virgin birth and then say that God needed billions of years to create. The same God who planted a seed in a virgin's womb so that his son could be born in a way which may be left him sinless and unique. If you, can't, if you believe, say you believe that miracle, you have to believe the miracle of creation. If you don't believe the miracle of creation that God created by his own power, by the word of his power, in six days, 6,000 years ago, you would have great difficulty believing the resurrection, that a man can raise himself from the dead. And we believe this because it's central to understanding of eschatology. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and there's going to be a tree of life from which they will feed, 
and that is set against the backdrop of the old heaven and the old earth. And both of these are created by God. So, in summary, what do we believe? We believe that the universe was created and did not evolve. Please do all you can to digest this. And do not be thrown by words that sound as though they are more intelligent than the scriptures. We believe that the universe is about 6,000 years old, and I've shown you how we reached that. We believe, we believe the creation took place in six consecutive 24-hour days. The creation was a supernatural, ex nihilo work of a holy, sovereign God. That all that the Bible claims about the origins of life is true and stands diametrically opposed to all the claims of, of evolution or any of its variations. If any worldview is presented to you and it hints at requiring billions of years, a red flag, go back to Genesis 1. They believe that the biblical account of creation is central to understanding the gospel, miracles, sanctification in marriage, and man's unique role as ruler over the earth. Briefly, that's what we believe about creation. A lot more to be said. A lot more will be said later on in another form. But for the time being, the story of creation is not a story. It's a historical account of a loving God who put into place a world that was populated by people who were made in his image so that eventually his son could be made in their form so that his son could die on Calvary's cross and thereby purchase for God a people of his own, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb so that God could have a people with which he could glorify himself. Creation is not a side issue. It's not something that we can relegate to children's stories only. Creation is central to your theology, your worldview, and how you respond to God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for leaving a record for us, a clearly defined paradigm of creation. We thank you, Lord, that you did this and no one else. We thank you for the truths we learn from it and for the way it guides our minds and hearts in living our lives to honor you. We pray for grace upon us now in Jesus' name and for his sake alone.